Let's say someone adopted a buy the dip strategy over the course of a 30 year investing career. Would it work out in their favor? And the answer without a doubt is no. The market tends to run away from you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm your host, Philip Müller, and joining us today is Jesse Kramer, who runs a blog called The Best Interest. Jesse worked as an engineer for seven years and started blogging out of his passion for helping people get better at personal finance and investing. Jesse, it's great to have you on the show. So give us a quick recap of how you came up with the best interest block and how did you get interested in finances in general? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Philip. I'm wearing my best interest t-shirt right now. At some point in my mid-20s, I had that realization that many uh, young people have, which is I have these paychecks. I really don't know what I should be doing with them. I just didn't know the right things to be doing with my money. So I did some self-education, especially on you know personal finance and investing basics, learned through some of the, the murky terminology that exists in investing. And after having some conversations with my coworkers, I realized there's a need for some beginner level education. And I, you know, I had done enough of it after a couple of years to realize that I could help people just at those beginning levels. So I started a blog. I started writing. I started sharing uh, simple investing basics that some of your listeners probably have heard before. But if people are new, there's not that many people catering to younger investors or beginning investors. So uh, I've been running the best interest now for um, three, a little over three years. Um, the blog's doing well. There's a little podcast that I'm running as well, although that's kind of on the back burner right now. And most recently, the most exciting change is that I actually changed careers. So I'm no longer working as an engineer. I'm now working for uh, a fiduciary RIA. That's a registered investment advisor here in Rochester. So every day I'm helping people. I'm working with clients, helping them reach their financial goals. And then by night, I'm, I'm running the best interest and writing about investing and teaching people about investing. So it's kind of what I'm doing uh, 24-7 now. Before that, were you always interested in personal finance even before college? Or was there like a moment in life where you think, oh, maybe my dad gave me a stock or I talked about it as a family about it or even take some personal finance classes in college? What was kind of like that initial spark? That's a good question. I think, I mean, part of the initial spark, and this is going to sound funny, there, there are a couple little anecdotes from my teenage years. Um, one, when it comes to computer games, I was never a big gamer, but the ones that I did play always had some sort of economic bent to them. You know, it was the games where it was about, uh, you know, collecting resources and, and budgeting your resources out in the future and, and building a structure so that your resources would grow over time. And looking back on it now, I mean, a lot of those games are structured essentially like long-term investing. But, um, the other anecdote is that when I was younger, maybe 12 years old, I did actually run a, a very small, small business at my brother's uh, baseball games where I just ran a little food stand. I sold bottled water and candy and, and stuff like that to the crowd. And, you know, okay, is that personal finance related? Maybe it's more entrepreneurial than anything else. But I was interested in money and making money and how to grow money and responsible things to do with my money from, from a pretty young age. Specific to personal finance and investing, though, there was one class in high school where for a couple of weeks we learned about the stock market. 
outside of that, it really wasn't until I was 23 years old and kind of realized I really didn't know what I was doing. And it was it was mostly self-taught from there. One of the issues is no one learns about it. And hence, you have very poor money management once you once you get into college and then especially when you get your first job, right? So now let's move forward then. What did you do with your first paycheck? Do you still remember that? I, I always yeah. like to ask that question. I mean, I, I don't remember the specifics necessarily, but I, I absolutely remember the feeling of upholding this paycheck and realizing that some of my, my monthly bills were were covered, but then I had some extra money. And I just remember asking myself, I know I have student loans. Should I pay them down? I know I should be saving for retirement. I just have no idea how or how much or when I should start. And also, I, I knew I had things from my teenage years that I, I wanted to buy, whether it was you know, uh, things that I would keep for the next 10 years, like a, a guitar that I still have today, or whether it was just some useless junk that I really didn't need, but I had things that I wanted to buy. And so how do I weigh or how do I balance those priorities of debt, investing, stuff that makes life fun? I remember that feeling, Philip, and uh, that was definitely influential in kind of pushing me down this path to figuring out what smart things I could and should be doing with my paychecks. Yeah, and we're getting to the investing part very soon now, because uh, I know that's what most listeners want to listen to. But um, you, okay, you get your first paycheck, right? Uh, you start thinking about uh, what to do with it, right? Um, at what point then did you make your first investment? Did you immediately sign up for a company retirement account? Did you even know that there was such a thing? What was like kind of the, the next steps then there? Yeah, I have a, I remember exactly what happened. So I have a good answer for you here. Uh, our human resources department at that company did a really good job of onboarding us young employees and explaining to us how their 401k program worked. They had a 401k program, which in the States, for those not familiar, is uh, an employer sponsored program where me as the employee, I would contribute a certain percentage of my paycheck. The employer agreed to match a certain percentage of my paycheck, essentially give me free money, which is really nice. And I remember asking my dad saying, hey, you know, I'm going to put this money into my 401k account. How should I actually invest it? Because once it's in the account, I have to choose. Do I buy stocks? Do I buy bonds? Do I buy a fund? And I remember I invested in a 2050 target date fund, you know, a, a fairly low cost fund uh, that at that time was mostly stocks and probably today still is mostly stocks. Um, with the idea that I'd be retiring around the date 2050. Investing and saving from as early as your first paycheck sets you up for long-term success. It's what we call pay yourself first. This is an important habit that helps you consistently set aside money for your future. Next, Jesse shares his investing North Star and tells us what his own portfolio looks like. Do you have a North Star? A lot of like bloggers that I talk to, their North Star is always, hey, I want to be financially free, right? Or I want to do fire or I want to teach people. What's your goal long term, if you might share, mind sharing? At one time, if you had asked me this question, say, three, three or four years ago, I probably would have said something along the lines of financial independence, retiring early, that sort of thing. But now I don't feel that drive anymore to necessarily, you know, I'm not sure why I would want to retire at 45 or 50. Um, so at this point, I'm simply I'm investing because I have this extra money. I feel like I have all my 
bases covered in my day-to-day life. I'm happy with my day-to-day life. And then I still have this extra money on the side. So I'm asking myself, what's the smartest thing I can do with this money so that if and when I need it, maybe it's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now, that I can A, retire comfortably, uh, and B, if I need the money before then, that some of that money will be there uh, for me to use. So what's my guiding star? I mean, right now, I'd say my, my guiding star is almost more day-to-day, Philip, where I've found this job that I really, really enjoy, this career change that I really enjoy, and I just want to do this every single day and not really have to worry about money. Um, and so I'm just socking it away for a rainy day when someday I might need it. Yeah, no, I think you're in a great position, right? Uh, that, that, that's what I always tell people when they ask like, oh, you know, what did you like about your job or what, what, what's the number one thing you should, you should figure out after college is like, Hey, what do you like to do? Right. Cause you have to do it for a long time. So you want to enjoy doing it too. Right. And not just look for the end. I, I like the financial independence as well, but that comes with, you know, being passionate about something, money will flow. Then you need to be smart about how you invest it. And I think that's where we're going to go next. Right. What, what are those, what are those rules of thumbs that you give people when they come to you for advice, especially knowing like, you know, you, you help your coworkers who I assume mostly also engineers, uh, when you were, uh, working at an, in this engineering job, what questions were they asking you and what advice were you giving? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, it's kind of depended on the age of the person who was asking me the questions. It seemed like different questions came from different age groups, um, a lot of the younger engineers, people who were kind of in my cohort, a lot of their questions were just the bare basics. And so some of the answers that I might give to some of their questions would be advice like, you should make sure that you get the full match on your employer 401k. It's that simple. If your employer is offering you free money, you should take advantage of that free money to the utmost extent that you can. Pretty simple rule. Um, then next question, what should I be invested in? Usually I would ask, well, are, are you interested in kind of learning more about different investment choices and investment styles? Like, do you kind of want to get your hands dirty on this or do you prefer to just kind of steer clear and, and not have to worry about it? If someone says they don't really want to learn more, they'd rather not worry about it. Target date funds, in my opinion, are a really good solution for that kind of person. If they do want to learn more, I would point them to a couple books. That would teach them about uh, lazy portfolios, which is is how I invested my 401k money in a, a few different index funds across a few different asset classes uh, with periodic rebalancing. Um, so that maybe those were some of the younger questions. I felt like maybe some of the more uh, experienced investors, or at least some of the older engineers, some of the older employees, some of them really knew what they were doing on an investment front. Um, and they managed all their own money, be it through passive management, or sometimes they even did some active stock picking. But I do believe that most of the people I interacted with uh, overestimated their investment uh, knowledge or investment skill. And so a lot of times the conversation was simply um, me trying to use the Socratic method and ask them a bunch of questions until they realized that, for example, you know, they don't know as much about Tesla as a company as they think they do, where they don't know as much about uh, Snowflake or Shopify as stocks as they think they do. Because being an active stock picker while also working 50 hours a week as a mechanical engineer is a very, it's a tough task in my opinion. Um, So those are some of the kind of conversations that I would have with them. 
Yeah, like like what you just said, because I use that example always uh, as well my whole life. <laughs> when, when I was a financial advisor, still in talks, I give it all the time, right? Like you think you can outsmart people who do it, you know, as a main job, 50 to 100 hours a week. You have two hours a week, right, to do it. What makes you so confident that you can pick individual stocks, right? And I think you gave me this uh, for the next segment pretty much here is that I wanted to ask you kind of already how do you balance your own risk and reward? And what does your portfolio even look like, if you mind sharing? If not, it's okay as well. We can also use percentages or whatever. But it would be quite interesting to hear what's kind of your approach. And then is, is that also what you're doing now in the RIA uh, for your clients? Yeah, a great, great question. On the personal side, uh, I just bought my first individual stock uh, about three months ago, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, B shares. So I own three three shares of Berkshire Hathaway, mainly just because I'm a, a Warren Buffett fanboy. Um, I'm not sure if it's a smart investment, but uh, it represents a fairly small percentage of my overall portfolio. So I think it's it's fun, in my opinion. Though I took three tenths of a percent and called it fun money and bought Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, the rest of my portfolio is uh, it's about an eighty twenty portfolio: eighty percent stocks, twenty percent bonds. And really, that maybe it's more like 15% bonds because I own a very small percentage, 3 or 4% of my portfolio is in uh, cryptocurrency mutual funds. I think they're very speculative. It's the only part of my portfolio that gives me pause and makes me unsure if I did the right thing, which I'm reconsidering if that's a sign if I should own them in the first place. So we, we can go down that bunny trail if we want to, Philip. Um, but then the rest of my portfolio is, so I've got about 15% in uh, total market bond funds. About 80% of my portfolio is in various stock index funds. And of that 80%, there's about a 70-30 split between uh, U.S. total market funds, so a large, mid, and small, and then international uh, international index fund. When you say 70-30 between U.S. and international, right, how did you make that decision? Is it simply no matter where in the world, you always have home bias, right? And yes, the U.S. stock market has a special place and we can get into this here in a second. But for example, in Germany, of course, people like German companies because that's what they're familiar with. They know BMW, they know Bayer, they know, uh, you know, Mercedes or whatever you want to call it in Germany. So they tend to have 70 to 80 percent in their home country always, if not even more than that. Right. And same in Asia and same in Singapore and things like that. Right. So they're more comfortable with what they're familiar with. But that's not necessarily the right thing to do. Right. What was your thinking between the 70 30 split? I, I heard something similar, actually, just this morning. Uh, I think the, the country they chose to look at was Sri Lanka, where they said something like, you know, 94 percent of equities owned by Sri Lankans are in the Sri Lankan stock market. Right. Everyone's got the home bias. Um, when I first made that decision, I was somewhat blindly following advice from, um, uh, Boglehead's guide to investing that book, uh, which I recommend it. It's a very, yeah, good, very book, good book. In my opinion, Agreed. Right? Yeah. And I think I just remember one of, you know, they, they talk about maybe eight or 10 different lazy portfolio constructions in that book. And I just picked one that. I thought it made sense to me. And I think that one was uh, for 100% total assets, it was 50 in the US market, 30% in international markets, and then 20% in bonds. So I just picked that lazy portfolio and I went with it. And as you heard earlier, I've tweaked it over time. It's changed a little bit. But why do I feel comfortable having this home bias? 
I don't want to be <laughs> this American ego, American centric here, but the American stock market does play a, if not a majority, at least a, a plurality role on the, the global stock market stage. So having a home bias in the U.S. is a little bit different from a mathematical sense than having a home bias in maybe a smaller stock market country. And uh, I feel pretty comfortable with my international exposure because it's there to to over the long run, hopefully act as a as a hedge and a rebalancing point. And the rest of the globe is growing, too, I hope. So I feel like that diversification provides me with a, a, a reasonable overall portfolio. No, and I like that. I, I think that's great. Uh, I have a little bit less U.S. in my own, um, but not that much less, right? So I, because I do think, you know, like if you look at a MSCI World Index, I think it's market cap weighted, right? I think U.S. is still about 56, 57% of that index as well, right? You're just overweighing it a little bit from, from that perspective, but that's great. But what I do see is from what you mentioned earlier, you also have a percentage in um in crypto uh, mutual funds, right? So are those then your kind of like bets in the market? Why did you choose to allocate some portion of your funds in crypto? We have we have crypto experts on this podcast before, right? We have people uh, in, in, in all the different verticals on, because obviously it's very interesting, right? Especially anyone, you know, under 40 is very much or interested in the space and sees, hey, there's something happening, right? Uh, it's still very wild west there's obviously this it's going to come from there this next technological revolution but what is it going to be we don't know right um so what's your hypothesis on choosing uh, to allocate some money towards that area yeah a fair question i spent a few years um really not understanding cryptocurrency at all and what i mean by that is if you ask me right now to explain cryptocurrency to you I think I could do a reasonable job and I've, I've been, I've done it on a few podcasts and I think I've done a reasonable job, but, uh, a year and a half ago, I could not have done a reasonable job. I did not understand it at all. And for what it's worth, I think there are many cryptocurrency investors out there who don't quite understand the, the technology, the underlying technology. They don't understand the value proposition. What they understand is that it's gone up and therefore it probably will continue to go up. And not everything works that way, as as we know. That's also not a very good investment thesis. But what I ended up doing uh, about a year and a half ago, 15 months ago, was for the sake of the blog, I spent a couple weeks just reading and watching everything I could about Bitcoin to see if I could convince myself that I understood how it worked, what what is mining, and what is the blockchain, why does cryptography need to be involved in this thing anyway. So... From start to finish, I tried to understand essentially the life cycle of, of, of Bitcoin from transaction to verification. And I kind of realized, oh, this makes sense. And and this blockchain technology, there's something there. Like you said, Philip, is, is Bitcoin going to be the end-all be-all of blockchain technology? Is Ethereum going to be it? Is it going to be something that we haven't really seen yet? I don't really know. But there's something to blockchain technology. So I devoted... Uh, about 2% of my portfolio to a Bitcoin mutual fund and about 2% of my portfolio to an Ethereum mutual fund because those are the two biggest players in the space. My thesis being, if something is going to end up winning the blockchain race over time, I might as well put my money on the two favorites, at least the two favorites right now. And 
for those astute listeners, that total percentage between Berkshire and crypto is a little bit less than 5% of my total portfolio because I'm following one of John Bogle's uh, fundamental rules, which is if you're going to have play money, if you're going to play around in the sandbox, make it less than 5% of your portfolio. Everything else should be in more standard, safe, passive index funds, according to Bogle. But still, so I'm, I'm keeping my play money on the small side because it might go to zero. No, absolutely. I, I think that that's, that's always the advice I give clients because you cannot stop people from gambling with some of their money. It's their money as well. And if you at least limit it to a certain amount and you have that big financial, the more safe stuff or like long-term retirement piece covered, then you can play with a little bit, right? And see if you can you can get some extra performance on it. And I think it's always interesting. Once you put your money where your mouth is or once you put money into something, you get more interested in it. You, you learn more about it. I, I think that always helps as well. So, so yeah, no, thank you for justifying you know, that investment and like what you're seeing in it. I, I do believe in that part too. So I do part of that as well. Let's talk a little bit more about emotions when it comes to the stock market. We are now recording this for all the listeners on March 10th in the US, US time. We're now in week two, I think, of the conflict over in the Ukraine. Stock markets have, you know, had five weeks of straight down weeks, uh, you know, and more violent down days than usual, right? Normally in the crypto world, this is normal. <laughs> so for anyone who has been investing a lot in crypto, they, they think this is a joke. But hey, we're talking about the stock market, right? And if, if something goes down one day by 3%, goes up by next by 3%, goes down again 3%, goes down 2%, that's a lot on the emotions and it's people's money, right? So this really shows, and this is where people get shaken out, right? If they took too much risk in the beginning. But what are some tips if you know friends come to you now or now clients, right? I'm sure over the last two weeks, three weeks, you've been getting lots and lots of questions on what's your opinion on it. Everyone can have an opinion on this crisis, but it's very, very hard to judge when it's over, uh, what the outcome is, right? But you can still, you know, keep the ship going straight. What, what are you telling people to do and how, how, to, how to check the emotions? It's, I mean, it's a great question. Well, well, let me let me start by just answering your question directly. One of the simplest things that we've been asking clients or that I'll ask people who are coming to me in, in other aspects of life, I will ask them, uh, what are your goals with your money? Uh, what's your timeline to reach those goals? And what's your risk tolerance like as far as, you know, up and down um, over time? You know, how do you feel about the markets these past few weeks? Are you are you really stressed out or are you just kind of curious? And then the question becomes, well, has the uh, the war in Ukraine, has that changed your goals and has that changed your timeline? Now, for most people, uh, in the U.S. at least, for most people, the answer is no. For most people around the globe, the answer is no, although I, I do understand that for some of the audience who might be living uh, more exposed to the conflict, maybe their goals and timeline have changed because of the conflict. But if your goals and your timeline haven't changed, then there's a really big question as to why anyone might consider changing their investments at this point or why anyone should be worried about their investments at this point. Um, now, the one exception to that rule I might, I might poke at is that for some newer investors, maybe, maybe they started investing after uh, March 2020, 
after the, the COVID sell-off. For some newer investors, this might be the first real dose of pessimism that they've ever gotten in their investing career. And if this is freaking them out, if someone's saying the S&P's down 13% and I can't stand it, that might be a sign that their what they thought their risk tolerance was is not quite the same as what their risk tolerance actually is here in the moment. So that might be a sign moving forward that we ought to rebalance towards a slightly less risk-heavy portfolio simply for the sake of their mental health. But for someone who's been investing for, for a number of years or, or decades, um, this is a, a, a very unfortunate humanitarian event, obviously. From an economic point of view, though, it's a smaller bump in the road. Um, there's a chart that we've been showing clients that shows 30 or so uh, very important geopolitical events since World War II. And it shows how the markets reacted, the timeline of the market's reaction, and then the timeline of the market's recovery. And the lesson that we show a lot of our clients is that geopolitical events aren't always directly correlated to economic events. This war in Ukraine, in Ukraine, there's definitely economic consequences. We're already seeing it in the commodities market, oil, wheat, those kind of things. But in the long run, what's that economic uh, effect going to be? From my point of view, Philip, it's somewhat unknown. And I'll finish this little uh, spiel with a, a good quote from Benjamin Graham that you might be familiar with. In the short run, the market is a voting machine. And in the long run, the market is a weighing machine. Right now, we're seeing voters in the market vote for pessimism. But in the long run, I'm not sure... If, if that pessimism will still be there. We'll see what the long-term economic weight is over time. So that was very useful advice for newer investors worried about the recent market volatility. Next, Jesse weighs in on whether the buy the dip strategy makes sense. We also talk a bit about how hard it is to beat the markets and whether you should even try. Yeah, no, I like I like I like that explanation and, and how you, how you're managing that with your clients. One of your blog posts, and I think you we talked about this. You, you also said it's one of your favorite before, right? Is called reminder. It's dumb to buy the dip, right? Let's say, for example, you you're an investor. You have invested money, but uh, you have some cash. Is now the right time to to buy buy the dip, right? Or is it gonna fall further, right? Or are you just you know buying into a a falling knife, right? Um, so what would you tell people knowing that you wrote in a blog post on it, which we will definitely put in the show notes below because I think it's a great blog post, first of all. How would you put that in perspective because that you wrote that a while ago, right? Does it yeah. still hold true? And maybe you can explain a little bit your reasoning behind that article as well. Sure, sure. Um, I'll start with the reasoning for the article because I think that might put it in perspective. Usually when people buy the dip... What they're doing is they're sitting on a pile of cash for an extended period of time. And then when a dip happens, they, they throw that money at the market. If you only zoom in on the part where the dip happens and they throw money into the market, it makes sense. Because you say, well, why would I have bought in the S&P 500 two months ago, Philip, when I could have just waited and now bought it at a 13% discount? It was worth the wait. Right. Well, we're zoomed in too much. You need to zoom out to the last two years when they've been hoarding cash and the S&P has run away from them. So if we repeat that process and we zoom out even further and we say, let's say someone adopted a buy the dip strategy over the course of a 30 year investing career. Would it work out in their favor? And the answer 
without a doubt, is no. The market tends to run away from you. If you're waiting for a dip, that dip might not ever come. Or by the time it does come, the magnitude that the market has increased is far greater than whatever the small dip is. So that's why buying the dip doesn't really make sense on the whole. It's not a good practice to, uh, to take part in over the course of your entire investing career. If someone happened to be hoarding cash for the last two months and now they're looking to buy in, I would tell them, well, mathematically, it's, it's smarter to buy now than it was two months ago. Um, but, but then you'll always be haunted by that question that you asked Philip, which is, are you catching a falling knife? And is that knife going to continue to fall? You can easily go right another twenty percent down, right? Absolutely. So that's that. That's the thing. The timing is so difficult, right? Right. It, it absolutely is, and that's why, from my perspective, a dollar cost averaging strategy it takes all the complication out of it. It's better than buying the dip over the course of a, a long investing career, mathematically, um, and it, it doesn't leave any room for those uh, hard psychological questions like, "Am I buying at the wrong time?" Yeah, no, agree. And I like your, your reasoning in the article. So again, I'll put that in the show notes because I think it's a great article. With that being said, let's move on from that emotion. I want to go a little bit more back one step. And we talked about your portfolio. I'm also a big believer in, you know, using index funds. You can still with index funds allocate certain asset classes, over allocate them, right? Uh, under allocate some others and make tactical decisions if you want to. However, people on the contrary say they like to invest in individual shares, right? Where I want to get to is, do you actually believe in the nobody can beat the market myth, right? Because that's kind of what it's associated with index investing. I just gave the example why, why you can still potentially beat the market by making sector bets, for example, or country bets, right? You over-index some part of the index. Where do you stand on that topic? Yeah, I... Um... I feel like certain communities have turned that idea of nobody can beat the market. They're trying to present it as some sort of truth. And I vehemently disagree with it as truth. People can beat the market. It happens all the time. Uh, mathematically, right? When we say the market, we should just establish that. What do we mean by the market? We mean the average performance of all stocks weighted across the market, usually weighted by market cap by the size of the company. But the market is essentially an average. So from a mathematical point of sense, uh, point of view, rather, we should ask ourselves, is it possible to beat the average? Well, well, of course it is, guys. Of, of course it is. I think the better question is, uh, how does it happen? How often does it happen? And is it worth seeking out? Um, not to toot my own horn. I, I wrote an article that's similar, you know, on this on this topic, probably a few two or three months ago, um, where it had some cool data in it uh, done by a, a investor named Meb Faber, who's got a, a pretty well-known podcast, where he looked at, um, I believe it was the Russell 2000 or maybe the Russell 3000 over some 25-year period, and said, how many stocks actually beat the average? You know, How many of these stocks were above average out of this 2000 stock profile? How many were below average? The answer is something only like 30% are above average and 70% are below average, something around there. The reason why is because the ones that are above average, some of them are way above average and they and they pull that average up. So already, if you're trying to beat the market, you're trying to pick from a smaller pool of stocks. It's hard to do. If you're paying someone else to do it for you, if you're paying for expertise, well, those fees come out of your potential gains. 
it's even harder to beat the market. There's a couple more points we can go through, but the end result is it's difficult to beat the market if you're not doing it yourself. It's difficult to beat the market if you think that you're going to pick your own stocks and do it yourself. So if you're unsure, if you're really not that committed, if you're really not that into it, why bother trying to beat the market when average market returns can get you pretty cool places over the long run? So that's where I stand on it. It's got to be possible from a mathematical point of view. We've seen famous investors do it over extended period of time. There's some skill involved. We, we know that there's a combination of skill and luck. But for the average listener, and even for me, probably for you, it sounds like, Philip, we look at it and say, I'll take my index fund. Maybe I'll make a couple tweaks here and there for fun. But on the whole, I'll take average. And that's OK. I agree with all the points. Right? And I always ask people, where do you, you know, if you, for example, invest in the S&P 500, where do you think these 500 companies are going to be in 10 years? Are they going to be bigger? Some will drop out, some will come in. See, this is what they also, people sometimes forget, right? If you, you don't hold the same 500 companies over the 10 years, right? The cool thing about it is the, you know, the worst 10% of those will drop out and you buy the next 10 upcoming new companies that are growing even more, right? So I think it gives you that great balance, um, in your portfolio without having to think too much about it. And like, I think what you said in the beginning of this podcast, it's really important is if this is not your full-time job, it's going to be very, very difficult also to beat the market because you just don't have the time that the professional investors have and the resources that they have, right? You know, they're, they're being paid handsome amounts of money, they're, they're the, the research departments, and they still can't on average outperform that many of those people do. So I think uh, that that's great uh, to almost wrap it up. But I have a couple more questions for you. Um, one is a little bit more forward looking. And that's what are some of the things you're researching right now? It can be anything, doesn't have to be investing. But uh, is there anything that yeah, like you're researching or learning or going down the rabbit hole to learn more about that would be interesting for our listeners? I would say that a lot of the work I've done so far in my personal finance and investing career, going back four or five years now, has been very targeted towards me and people like me. You know, I ran into problem X in my life. Therefore, I researched it. I wrote articles about it and I told other people I ran into problem Y. I do the same thing. So I feel like I know a decent amount about the problems that 30 year old Americans have run into. Right. It's pretty, pretty um, selfish of me in some ways. But but in my job, one thing I'm really enjoying is learning a lot about, say, retirement planning. As in, I'm, I'm now 55 years old. I've been saving for 30 years. I think I'm ready to pull the trigger. Am I actually ready? What kind of thought goes into that? Um, things like healthcare costs is I mean, in the U.S. is a big is a big issue, uh, especially for people who might be retiring and can no longer be on their employer's health care plan. Uh, things like annuities. I didn't really know what an annuity was until two weeks ago. I, I kind of knew how it worked, but I didn't really understand the nitty gritty of it or why annuities were so frowned upon. Okay, so I just learned a lot about annuities in the past couple weeks. So one thing I've really been focusing on the last couple months is is retirement planning or financial problems that older people tend to run into. And it's it's really interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Yeah, I think that's for another episode. And I think yeah, uh, yeah. You, you got me to a good point because I think we we had people here that, you know, have already been 
financially independent, but they still run blogs or they, they still have like side jobs or something, right? But every actually talking to someone that lives off their portfolio is going to be quite interesting actually to listen to because I feel I have not have done it either. I've done it for people. And I, I know how it feels for because I, I had clients who are retired. But it is a scary transition from having a paycheck and saving to now not having to save because you saved enough, right? Like you can, let's say you made all the right math, you can retire now. But having that and then actually drawing down a portfolio or like taking money out for the first time versus, you know, adding to it and having it see grow seems to me, especially me as a financial person that really likes saving and investing, seems like a very scary concept, uh, you know, or a daunting thing, even though it shouldn't be, because that's what you do it for. And at some point you need to enjoy it too and, and reap your re- rewards that you've done sown over a long period of time. But that that's a you you got me there. So I think that that's that's a good that's a good another discussion, even if we have it or we have someone on together <laughs> to interview him, because I think it's it's a super interesting topic to 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 show really that transition from from saving to drawing down is probably for a lot of people not the easiest concept. But hey, so thanks for sharing that. Um I, I like that. Um tell our listeners a little bit about your book because I think uh it's interesting. I have not personally read it yet. Uh I, I'm I want to uh, because I think the topic is cool and uh, that's just uh, things I like a lot. Where can they find it and what is it actually about? It's called Money Mastermind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well I'll I'll send you I'll send you a copy, Philip. So you can you can get a copy if you don't already have one. Um so the book, yes, the book is called Money Mastermind. Um, maybe I can send you a link that can go in the show notes if people are interested. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, yep. if they go to my oh, we'll blog, definitely put it in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's there's a few ways, or you know, they can few ways they can get to it. The book itself is uh, I've reached out to uh, people I knew through the blogging world or the Twitter world or the Instagram world. Some of whom were maybe you could call them influencers. Others were more writers by trade, financial writers. And I said, hey, if would you be interested in writing a chapter about one topic of your choice, one personal finance and investing topic of your choice? It can be budgeting. It can be stocks. It can be Ethereum mining, whatever it is. And uh, I got about 30 people to say yes. So I had 30 contributions covering a, a wide range of, of personal finance and investment topics kind of mashed them together into one book, similar to a book that Tim Ferriss put together called Tools of Titans. And uh, so we cover everything from personal finance basics, stuff that a beginner would need to know, like budgeting, to investment basics, to more uh, to more detailed stuff about like, you know, nitty gritty investing topics, how to earn more money, how to negotiate at work. Um, so it's just a bunch of interesting personal finance knowledge that a lot of people, especially if they're younger or newer, to the world of money would find interesting written by you know 30 plus experts yeah no i love it uh, i think it's gr- it's a great tool to have in your toolbox so if people are interested we'll definitely put that in the show notes below as well and if you want to find out more about jesse we'll put all his contact details in there all his socials and wherever you can find him other than his blog so that you can uh, get in contact with him if you need to um jesse Really, really appreciate your time. Uh, I'm sure we get to do this again. Uh, so much more to cover. We can go into much more detailed uh, into different topics because we really brushed on them today. But uh, again, hey, thank you so much and really appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Philip. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk. 
That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us and we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley. Thank you.